Luke chapter 15, starting in the first verse. Hear God's word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me! For I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. A great God, we bow before you now and we praise your name. You are so holy and majestic. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Your love will indeed endure forever. God, we we pray, Father, that your name would be glorified. For you have the name that is above all names. God, we, we bow as servants do when they are in the presence of royalty. God, we are reminded of how short we fall of your glory, of your majesty. So God, we first ask for our forgiveness forgiveness for our sins, how we have wronged you this past week, how we have been consumed with thoughts of self, uh, with thoughts of money, with thoughts of greed and lust and jealousy and bitterness. God, forgive us for how we have pursued dissensions and strife, how we have grumbled against your provisions. We have grumbled against your people. We have grumbled against you. Dear God, we ask through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by his shed blood, that you would forgive us of all our sins, that you would purify us, that you would cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. God, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts this day. We also pray for for the gospel proclamation in our city. God, we want the pulpits in our land to be filled with the gospel. God, I pray that all over our land this morning that people would preach the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is one name under heaven which man can be saved, that is the name of Jesus Christ. So God, I pray that today would be a day about your glory, about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and how you are making a people for yourself, of your own possession, who are zealous for good works. And God, to that end, we pray for our dear brother Bill Reagan as he's preaching over at New Life uh, Baptist Church this morning. God, we pray that you would fill him with the power of your uh, your spirit, God. And as he preaches, he preaches your word, your inerrant holy word uh, to those people. They would be edified and built up in Christ, that they would be moved from one degree of glory to the next. 
And God, we do thank you for the freedoms we have in our country. God, we know that our freedoms are often under attack, but God, we are a country that has more freedoms than any other um, nation. So God, we thank you for allowing us to live in this land. God, let us not forsake it. Let us not forsake our freedom to express the gospel to those who are lost and perishing. God, I pray that you would embolden us to live in the freedom that we have in Christ, not fearing what we can what can be done to us by those in authority in our land. God, we pray now for our own hearts as we approach your word. God, I I first ask you to pray for my own heart, God, that you would just quiet me with your love. God, that I would not be um, distracted, but that my heart would be fixed on your glory. God, I pray for the people whom you've given me to shepherd. God, I thank you for them. I thank you that you have saved them by your blood. I thank you that you are working even now in the, by the power of your Holy Spirit in their lives, God, to, to transform them in, into the image of your Son in whom you love. So, God, I pray even now as we preach your word that you would preach through me, God, that I would announce, that I would declare, but, God, the Holy Spirit would take the word and press it upon your people's hearts. God, let me serve them well today by the preaching of your word. So God, I ask that I may decrease, that you may increase, that you take all glory and honor through this message. Bless your people through your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Leo's Barbershop uh, was the home of my first haircuts. Uh, My dad would take my brothers and I to Leo's Barbershop on Saturday mornings. Uh, Now, Leo's Barbershop was owned and operated by Leo. Leo was a fine, upstanding gentleman and a wonderful, wonderfully talented barber. His partner, Hank, was a fine, upstanding gentleman, but a wonderfully untalented barber. My brothers and I would often make excuses um, with one another why we could not sit in uh, Hank's chair. We would feign politeness by allowing the other one to go first. Um, my mom would always be able to tell who had the Hank cut when we walked in the door. No one likes a bad haircut. Uh, It really is an awful experience to receive a tragic cut. Uh, I still laugh at my good friend, Kurt Heath, who uh, responds to his bad haircut that he had in June 3rd, 2013, which he proceeded to grumble about to the Facebook world. Uh, I quote, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that I just received the worst haircut of all time. I simply, I don't simply mean in terms of my own personal history. I mean in the history of the world. $16 doesn't get you what you used to. Come on, supercuts. And just let me add that I've had some very bad haircuts in my day. Once I had a wonderful barber with a moderate to severe hand tremors. Enough to make you nervous. Though he wasn't very adept at dealing with the nuances of my double crown, he always gave me sage advice. I can deal with a muff do as long as you give me some life wisdom. Uh, If you've ever had a bad haircut, you know how he feels. Uh, Doesn't it seem somehow acceptable or somehow right to grumble (laughs) about a bad haircut? Uh, It just feels right. Uh, There are certain things in our life which 
grumbling seems to be the most appropriate response. A bad haircut, food poisoning, an empty box of Krispy Kreme donuts. How we respond to life's successes and failures reveal a lot about our hearts. Our natural response reveals about the truth in which is in our heart. So we have to pay careful attention in terms of how we respond to the natural things in life. This morning, I pray that your natural desires would be revealed to you so that we can move our natural desires more to have God's desires. Uh, This morning, we're going to look, we're going to ask ourselves one question with the hopes that God would reveal um, our natural response so that we can correct it. The question, one question this morning that we must ask and truthfully answer, how does your heart respond towards repentance? How does your heart respond towards repentance? How does your heart respond to a sinner coming to Christ? With grumbling or gladness? With grumbling or gladness? Let's look at that first idea. Does your heart respond with grumbling? Look back in our text this morning, Luke 15, 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. And now tax collectors were hated by the Jewish people. Now remember, the, 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 the Jews were under Roman oppression. So what the Romans did, they took certain individuals and they made them tax collectors, and they had to collect taxes from their own people. But what the the Romans also did, they allowed these individuals to increase the level of their uh, the rate in which they took in. So they allowed these people to extort money from their own people, and the people hated them for it. Now sinners were regarded as living contrary to God's law. These sinners were viewed as forfeiting their relationship with God based on their behavior. So the bottom line of these two groups is that they were hated by the Pharisees and the scribes. It was clear that no self-respecting Pharisee or scribe would ever be seen with those people. Now before I pounce on the Pharisees, which we often do, um, can I just tell you that the Pharisees had a point. Understand their current context. These people were living in ways in which God hated. Proverbs 20, 23 says this, unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord and false scales are not good. When God looked at the tax collectors, what the tax collectors were doing, he said, it is an abomination. He did not look at it kindly. Psalm 5, verse 4 and 6. Listen to how God responds to those who live in sin. The Lord says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Can we just stop for a second and say God does not take sin casually? And neither should you. The Lord says here that he hates all evil doers, and he abhors the deceitful man. 
So these Pharisees and scribes, they rightly understood these people were far from God. They were sinners. But what they didn't understand is they also were sinners. They didn't understand their own need for God's grace. They did not understand their own need for God's forgiveness. So they grumbled. This man receives sinners and eats with them. If you are a grumbler, if you're in that camp, when I ask you that first question this morning, I pray the Holy Spirit would reveal it to you because here's what a grumbler does. A grumbler always sees the sin of others. It's easy to spot them out. Grumblers see how others fall short of the glory of God. They see how others struggle with sin and how others live contrary to God's word. A grumbler understands judgment and they understand condemnation because they are the ones giving it. So do you grumble when sinners draw near to the word of Christ? Do you grumble when people who don't look like you and don't act like you enter in to our fellowship to hear the word of Christ? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So when people come here to our gatherings to hear the word of Christ, if we grumble, we don't understand the gospel. Because what we understand is their sin and not looking at our own. Are you grumbling and seeing others' sins and ignoring your own? Self-righteousness leads to grumbling. And this grumbling leads you, this is the danger part, leads you against Jesus Christ. Listen again to this self-righteous grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Do you see how they're placing themselves against the Lord Jesus? This man, as opposed to us, who would never eat with those sinners. But this was the whole point of why Jesus came. This is why he, he was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Listen to what he says in Luke 5, 31 and 32. And Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to call sinners. And guess what, beloved? Jesus came to call all sinners, which means all of us. All people need repentance because there is none righteous. No, not one. Jesus came for those who are far from God that they may be saved. To the Pharisees did not understand the original intent of the Messiah, the servant of the Lord. Listen to what Isaiah 49, 6 says. It is too light a thing that you should, serve, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. It was too small for God only to save the Israelites. He said, I will make you a light to the nations. The ones who knew God's word, I'm should sorry, the ones who were supposed to know God's word did not understand. So they grumbled. I find this often in churches, not necessarily our church, but it's been times where this has happened in our own church, where those of you who know, have known God the longest, 
You sat at his feet the longest. You have chosen the good portion. You forget. You forget that you have been saved because you were a sinner. And those of you who know, should know God's word the best, grumble. I pray it would never be for our church because grumbling hinders the mission of God. Grumbling goes against the great commission that God has given his people. Listen to Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Paul says, do all things without, without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, a person who does not grumble shines the glory of God to our world. So if you are one who is, who is trusting in God and not complaining and arguing, you shine as light to the world that Jesus Christ is real, that the gospel is true. But if you grumble, you darken the gospel. Now, if this is true for an individual, how much more true is it for a body? Now, if you as an individual in your own life, in your own sphere of influence, is known for complaining, you darken the gospel that people may not see the light of the glory of Christ. What happens if we do that as a congregation? What happens if our body is known for complaining and arguing? Then we darken the display of God's glory. I pray it never be so. Grumbling is unacceptable. Amen. Amen! That's right. Preach. All right. The second thing, let's look at this idea of gladness. Gladness. Jesus responds to this grumbling with three parables. We're going to look at two today. Uh, because we, we know this. Look at verse 3. It says, so. Right? Because they're going so, that's that purpose word. So, this is Jesus' answers to those who grumble. Listen to this text again. Now, when I read this, I want you to see the heart of the Lord towards those who repent. So he told them this parable, which man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he finds it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice! Rejoice with me! For I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Pretty clear from the text, Jesus' response to sinners, isn't it? He had a glad heart. He was filled with gladness. Now, we, he shares two different parables with similar themes. So we're going to look at four themes, and then we'll close uh, with the Lord's Supper. The first one is being lost, being pursued, being found, and being glad. The first, being lost. In order to understand the Christian message, we first have to understand what it means to be lost. The parable pictures a lost sheep and a lost coin, but they both symbolize the sinner. After God made the world, he said that it was very good. His world was perfect and his relationship with man was perfect. 
And then what happened? Adam and Eve rejected God's good word and corrupted his good world with sin. Sin brought a separation from God. We were banished from God's place. We were lost in this fallen world. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The consequences of sin is a physical death followed by eternal death with eternal punishment, with unquenchable fire. This is the reality of everyone without God. This is why the Pharisees responded the way they did. This is why they grumbled at Jesus, because they knew how God treated those who were lost, who were apart from him. The second thing we see here is not being lost, is being pursued. God put us out of his place, out of the Garden of Eden, to be lost, wandering in the world. We were lost, but look at the pursuit of the lost of our God. Verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And again in verse 8, what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? God pursues his sheep that have gone astray. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, Jesus Christ pursued lost sheep until he found them at the cross. Our iniquity was laid upon Jesus. He pursued us with perfect obedience so that we could die. He could die a perfect death in our place. Then he could give us a a perfect life with his resurrection from the dead. He pursued us. When I was a a senior in high school, uh, I wanted to play football in college, and I never really thought about it was ever going to be a possibility. Then all of a sudden, I started getting pursued by different colleges. You know, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Penn, we want you. Writing letters, making phone calls, come to our campus. I was being pursued. And you know what? It felt good. <laughs> I mean, you ladies know when, you, when your husband, I pray he still pursues you, but at the beginning of your relationship, he pursued you. It, it fills us up. This is, what, this is why, as Christians, we should never, ever feel unloved. Because Christ pursued you. When you were far from God, when you were rebelling against Him, He came to you. He swept the house. He lit the lamp. He searched diligently until what? Until He found you. God demonstrated His love for us that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. Being found. God pursues us until we are found. How do we know we are found by God? Sinners are found when they repent. You see that in verse 10 and 7 and 13, the same refrain over one sinner who repents. This is how people are found. Repentance is a fundamental change in how we, in how we think about how we view who God is. We change our, our opinion of God and our whole life changes afterward. Beloved, repentance starts with a proper view of God first. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a movement among certain churches that tell preachers, Preach shorter sermons and don't teach doctrine. 
Don't teach theology. Give them what they need. Beloved, can I tell you that is the wrong approach? I can't fix your marriage. I can't fix your parenting until you see God rightly. Until you see God rightly, until you see who Jesus Christ is as the Savior of the world, the Lord of the universe, you will not change your behavior. Your desires, your affections have to change for him first. So the question for us this morning is, what is our response to repentance? What is God's response? You see it right there, being glad, being glad. God loves to save sinners. Verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over 99 of the one sinner who repents, the 99 who doesn't. Joy and gladness explode in heaven when sinners turn to Christ. When we have baptisms here, the reason why I want to share people's testimonies is because I want our hearts to rejoice. I want our hearts to be filled. You know, when you have celebrations in your own house, right? We have birthday parties, you have um, anniversaries and graduations. What do you do? You bring all your friends together, right? You say, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. This is what God does to his people. He says, rejoice with me. Gather together. Bring your friends. Bring your neighbors. Rejoice with me. One who was, who was lost is saved. One who was in the kingdom of darkness, condemned to an eternal hell, has been redeemed, has been purchased with the blood of Christ, transferred into the kingdom of his Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Rejoice! That should be our heart. Because that is God's heart. And can I just say this? I don't think we have that heart. I mean, I think we know where we should be, right? We should have that gladness. We don't want to be grumbling. I think anyone can pick up that. I'm not making anything, many new points here. Um, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, we probably fall somewhere in the middle. We don't grumble when people are saved. But I don't think we have that kind of gladness. I don't think we have that, hey, everybody, let's gather. I think if we did, we would pursue sinners until they were found by God. See, our desires are too small because we are not pursuing true gladness. We are not pursuing true joy. We are not pursuing sinners until they are found. I pray, I pray for you and for me that we would start lighting our lamps, would start sweeping our house, would start seeking diligently until those that we know in our life who are lost are found. And how we do it is first looking at ourselves, remembering how God has saved us, God has redeemed us. We start right here at the Lord's Supper. This is why the Lord established it for us. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And we rejoice today because this man is still receiving sinners and eating with them. We rejoice in the Lord's Supper is an invitation for sinners to commune with God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we approach the Lord's table, we must remember how lost we were and how God pursued us. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on a tree 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we remember how Jesus' body was broken for our sins. We remember that we were straying like sheep, but have returned to the great shepherd, the overseer of our souls. So we come to this table and we proclaim the Lord's death on our, on our behalf until his return. And we recommit our lives to dying to sin, to living for righteousness, and for the repentance of sinners. Can I just say this before we approach the table? As you approach the table, the Bible says that we should examine ourselves. This is why I give you weeks' notice before we take the Lord's Supper. Um, listen to 1 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. As we prepare the table, can I ask you to examine your life? And if necessary, ask for the Lord's forgiveness. Because he delights and he rejoices when one sinner repents.